Amen. If you're able, please rise as we read God's word together this morning. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You have said in your word that the grass, the grass that comes up in the springtime, it fades in the summertime, it withers and it goes away. But your word, it never withers, it never fades away. It's always strong, always applicable. And so Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to carry my words to these people gathered here today. Carry your words to them. That it would mold them and shape them to be more like Christ. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Who are you? <laughs> That's the question for the day. Who are you? That's the question that we in humanity have been asking since the very beginning of time. From the moment that our mouths, our lips, our tongues could form words, our brains could form thoughts, we've been asking that very question. Who am I? Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Adam and Eve, they were even tempted by this very question itself too. Who are you, Eve? Adam? You're more than what God says you are, aren't you? You could be more. Because you, right? This, this is the question. Who are you? And you could be like God. For you have to be something greater and something more. What is your value? Who are we? Are you undervalued, overvalued? This is the question that they were tempted with. It's the same question that we're tempted with even here and now. Who are you? Who am I? Abraham, even he questioned his value before the Lord. Moses, I can't do that. Who am I? Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? We could go on and on throughout Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testaments, and pull out people who question their value. Who are we? Who am I? What's my role? How do I go about this thing called life? The philosopher Descartes even questioned this thing too, right? Who am I? I think, therefore I am. We could argue the merits of that one way or the other, but he's well known for that very... He thinks he is because he thinks. Shakespeare, perhaps asked a more fundamental question even than Descartes. To be or not to be? That's the question. Who are we? What are we? Even the United States Army asked the question, who are we? They say, and it's been a really wonderful recruiting tool for them, the United States Army says that you are an army of one. Man, I would like to be an army of one. But they understand the question. They understand the question that we all ask. Who are we? And they're giving that person all of the power 
that the United States Army has, and they say, you are our army. You are an army of one. So who are you? What defines you? What makes you, you? If you recall, some years ago, I used an illustration, but not everybody was here. When I first came here now, almost seven years ago, I I used this illustration, and I'm going to bring it back here today because it's a really good illustration, I think. When I was a little boy, when I was a young boy, I had a yellow lab, and she was a great dog, but she had energy, and she had energy, and then she had energy on top of her energy. And the only way that we could somehow combat this amazing amount of energy from this dog was that we'd throw tennis balls to her, right? The house that I grew up in had a big field behind it, and we would throw tennis balls out on that field, and she would run and run and run. The problem was is that our arms got tired before she did. So we came up with the solution that we would take a tennis racket with this tennis ball, and we would hit that tennis ball as far as we could with a tennis racket. And I don't know how she saw the ball time and time again, but she did, and she would run and run and run until literally she could not walk. She loved the tennis ball. The question I have for us this morning, what are you chasing? I don't really like slobbery tennis balls. Sassy did. But all of us are running after something. We're all chasing something. What are you chasing this morning? What are you worshiping? Who are we worshiping? Take a moment right here and right now. It doesn't have to be a lot of time. But I do want us just to take a second and to honestly ask ourselves that question. What wakes me up in the morning? What motivates me? What strives me to be who I am? Money? Power? Control? Alcohol? Drugs? Sex? What drives you? What motivates you at your very core? Who are you? These things are not inherently evil. But when they become the thing that we chase over and over and over again until we can't walk, that's how we define an idol. But you see, these are the things that define us. Our worship defines us. An American author by the name of David Foster Wallace at a commencement speech at Kenyon College, told the graduates these words. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He's asking the same question as we've been asking for generations. Who are you? Who am I? What do I worship? What do you worship? What do we worship? Who are you? I will take Mr. Foster's statements one step further and say that the thing we choose to worship, that defines us. That makes us who we are. So what are you chasing? 
What we chase is what we worship. What are you worshiping? What am I worshiping? Or maybe we could ask the question this way. What defines you? Because if worship defines us, then what do we worship? What defines us? What are we worshiping? Who are we? As we continue in our look at the Lord's Prayer this morning, we are are given at the outset of the prayer the template that begins to shape our very existence or begins to shape what it is, who it is, how it is that we worship. What are we chasing? We are given this very thing that defines us, makes us who we really are. It gives us a template, a matrix, a liturgy for what it means to worship and how to worship. This is what the Lord's Prayer does for us. So again, who are you? You are a worshiper of something. What are you worshiping? Our statements of faith in the Presbyterian Church, our catechism builds upon this as well, doesn't it? This morning we use some of those catechisms to talk about prayer. But there's even a more fundamental statement of faith, question and answer, that builds upon this actual existence question. Who are we? The very first one. What's the purpose of man? What's the chief end of man? What's our sole purpose in life? And many of us know the answer to that. The answer then is our, our sole purpose, our, our chief end is to, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In other words, our chief end is to worship our God. And in that worship, to enjoy Him. To enjoy everything about Him. To enjoy who He is and what He's done. And if we're worshiping Him, then that begins to define who we are. It defines how we are. It defines and answers the question, who am I? This is what it means. But does that mean that we sit around and sing hymns all day and forever and ever? And that we sit on clouds and pray all day? No, I don't think so. But how we live our lives in accordance to God's will is an act of worship. We reflect the glory of God and the things that we do, how we go about our work, how we go about treating our employer, our employees, our, our, the people that we work with, the people that we buy stuff from in order for our business to do well. All that we do and all that we say and how we interact with these people defines us. And it should point to God. You see... Because as we worship the Lord, it begins to mold us and shape us and it begins to define who we are. If God is loving, I should be loving. If God is patient, I should be patient. If God is kind, I should be kind. So if I'm not these things, then we need to check what is it that I'm after? What am I chasing? My own power, respect, control, pride? I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) So all of these things that there are to worship in the world, why should we worship God? Why should we worship God today and tomorrow and forever? When Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, He revealed Himself to us. He revealed His character, His holiness, His grace, His love. He revealed Himself to us and encourages us to lean into Himself 
into the very character of the Lord God Himself. So when we lean into the character of the Lord, we begin to answer the question, who we are. Or we begin to answer the question, why do we worship God? This morning we're going to be looking at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6 in in particular. And the the verse says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Last week we talked about this term Father and all that that means. We talked about how He is our Father that adopts us into His family and gives us all the benefits of the heir of the kingdom. And what a glorious, wonderful thing that is that the Lord gives us as children of the Lord. But then we move into this next section of this phrase, in heaven. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we worship because the Lord is hallowed, right? So we could answer the question, who are we and what do we worship? We worship, the, we worship God and we reflect God. And why do we do that? Because he's hallowed. And then we can just stop the sermon right there and be done, right? Amen? We worship because God's hallowed. That would be a fine thing to do unless we don't really know what hallowed means. Which I think for many of us, it's another one of those things that we say this, we say it every single week, and we still wonder, what, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean to hallow the Lord? And so we come across this term, and it's good and it's right to answer that question. Yet we are still saying that we worship the Lord because He is hallowed. We pray these words We want to live these words out. Does it mean when we say God's hallowed that he's somehow like a hall of fame where we talk about the hallowed halls of the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio? Is it something like that? Actually, kind of. Sort of. In a roundabout way. The word hallowed does actually work well to describe places like the Hall of Fame or the Sistine Chapel or things like that. Because there's something special about those places. There's something unique about those places. There's something even reverent about some of those places. So what does it mean? What does it mean that the Lord is hallowed or that we should hallow his name? After all, this is what the Lord says that we should do in the opening stanzas of the Lord's Prayer. So to use the Lord's Prayer to answer that question, the word hallow means first, I believe, as we look at this, And I'm going to be a good Presbyterian pastor here and use three things all to begin with the same letter, right? Because that's just how we do things. So to be hallowed and to worship the Lord means to be rooted, means to be revered, and it means to be requested. Okay, so rooted, revered, requested. So pay attention to those words as we go through, as we look at this one little section of verse 9 in Matthew chapter 6. So I have another question for us this morning as we think of this broader question of Who are you? How are you defined? What makes you, you? The next question I have for you is this. Home. What is home? Where is home? Home. How do you define home? Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it a thing with wood and bricks and windows and doors? What is home? What do you call home? For many of us, home is all of those things, right? It's the physical place where we do most of our eating and sleeping. It's, it's the people that live in that thing with wood and bricks and windows and doors. It's the comfort of that place. It's also memories of that place, perhaps, of chocolate chip cookies or brownies or apple pie or 
pot roast in a crock pot or whatever those smells and feelings are. This place of comfort, this place of security and safety. I started to ask myself this question this week as I was thinking about the opening statements of the Lord Prayer. I asked myself the same question. What is home? There's this tiny little section that it seems to me, or at least I rarely slow down long enough to linger over the words, and it holds a really big impact of how we look at the Lord's Prayer. It's this phrase in heaven. I wonder why the Lord chooses to provide that little bit of information in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven. Why does He tell us this? He gives us a bit of information about who He is. So it occurred to me, that is it simply stating His residence? Is it simply just a matter of our Father who lives at such and such an address called heaven? Is that why He's saying that to us? Is it that he is saying this is where God is and this is where he only is? Well, yes and no. Yes, God is um, omnipresent and he's omniscient and he's all these omnis. But he's also spirit. But he's also in heaven. He tells us he is in heaven. And so just as we know our addresses, so we know God's address. So too does God. But it's more than just an address, isn't it? It's almost insulting to think of God just being in this one small space called heaven. We do him an injustice and in service to think of that's just where God is. But yet, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, Our Father who is in heaven. So what are we to do with this phrase? So I don't present to you this morning that we think of heaven in merely the terms of physical places, although heaven is an actual physical place. I want to think in the term of rootedness. In rootedness. Our Father who is in heaven means some level of security and consistency of eternal of eternity. That the Lord is rooted in an actual place. What I mean by that is that there is no changing in the Lord. He is not here one moment and there in another moment. The Lord does not change. This is what I am using the word rootedness to mean. Not that he's just simply rooted to one small section of the universe, but rooted to his consistency, rooted to his faithfulness, rooted to his character, rooted to who he is and what he is and how he goes about governing the world. He is the king of the universe who is enthroned in the chamber of heaven. That does not and will not forever change. Rooted in his majesty. Rooted in His power. Rooted in His authority. Rooted in reality. The term heaven is denoting to us an actual place where the Lord resides and also telling us about His personhood. There's no changing from all of eternity. From all eternity past and all eternity in the future. He's rooted to Himself because He is in heaven. He will not move Himself from the throne of heaven. This is where he resides as King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, and sustainer of all things. This is who the Lord is. I sort of look back on my life as I was asking this question. Look back on all the places that I've lived. How many times my address has changed. And I knew it would be a daunting task, but I actually sat down and tried to think of how many times and how many places I've lived. And I think, I think, 
my address has changed at least 25 times. I reserve the right to be off one way or the other. So let's just do some math. I'm 48 years old, and my address has changed at least 25 times. So you can quick put that into your phone if you want to. Just do some simple math. And that will yield you a result of 1.92. So almost two times a year, my address has changed in my life. That seems remarkable, and I didn't like that result when I thought about it. But that is what this is, right? Someone's actually checking my math, I hear you. But that's a lot. That's a lot of change. That's... that's, that's an amazing amount of unrootedness, of insecurity, of where am I? Where am I going? And, but what is it saying? Am I saying, poor me? No, I'm not saying that at all because I wouldn't probably change any of that. But what it means is that our lives are in flux. They're always changing. Whether our address is changing, our lives are changing. And in our world today, things change, it seems like, every single second. Every time we turn on Instagram, there's another news story that lasts 10 seconds, and then we move on to another one. We just live in a world that flips and flops, and something's always new, different, and it comes at us all the time. But in the opening statement of the Lord's Prayer, he says, we say, our Father who is in heaven, that never changes. He will never change because he's rooted in his character. He's rooted in who he is and his power and his authority. So no matter how many times our story on Facebook or IG changes, or how many times we flicker or TikTok, he doesn't change. And it lasts for a lot longer than 15 or 20 seconds or three seconds. He has not changed. He isn't changing and he will never change. To me, for someone whose addresses change almost two times a year for every year of his life, that's a great comfort. And I think for us, as we walk through our crazy lives, it's a great comfort to all of us as well. Knowing that my life may change, some of my thoughts might even change, but the Lord, he does not. Because he sits enthroned in heaven. And he's rooted in its character. And he's rooted in who he is. And so we don't have to search him out. We know where he is. He sits enthroned in heaven. We don't have to wonder if he's going to show up because we know he's already there. We know he's already here. Because he tells us he's rooted in that consistency and that sovereignty and that power and authority and might. This is who he is. In other words, he's always there for you even when our worlds are too often turbulent and our stories change. But as we dive further into this understanding of this small phrase, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, we look into the section of this word hallowed. In his consistency and in his eternal sovereignty, the Lord is worthy of all praise and honor. 
Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Once again, we return to this word hallowed and the perplexity of this unusual word. It's a word that's uncommon to us, and therefore, it's worthy of our consideration. When's the last time in your day-to-day conversation you used the word hallowed? I bet you haven't used the word hallowed in any one of your conversations other than last week's Sunday or today. It's the last time we used the word hallowed. Because it's really the only time that we, in our vernacular in 2022, ever use that word. But if we were to look up the definition of the word hallowed, we would see that it means to be consecrated or made holy. I'm not sure if that helps very much. Because even that word, consecrated, what does that mean? Holy even, what, what, is, what does that mean? But to be holy, we know, is to be set apart. To be set apart is means to be something different or different than all of the other things. For those of you that grew up with Sesame Street, maybe the song, one of these things is not like the other. Remember that song? That's a bit of what's going on. It's, it's being set apart of all the things that are lined up in a row. One of these things is different. To be holy means that thing is set apart from everything else. One of these things is different than the others. The Lord as holy, hallowed, consecrated, is set apart. He's different than everything else. Did you know that there are 30 teams in Major League Baseball? There are. So what does that mean, logically? There's 30 Major League Baseball teams. There has to be, what, 30 Major League Baseball stadiums, right? Well, not every baseball stadium is the same. We here in Arlington, Texas, just had a new stadium built. And it's a really nice stadium. I would encourage you to go. It's fun to go to. It's very nice. It's, it's clean. It's, it's indoors. It's not hot, right? It's a very pleasant experience. The Rangers, on the other hand, are not so pleasant. <laughs> but there are 30 baseball stadiums in the Major League, but there are only two that really mean anything. Can you guess? One is Wrigley Field. Yes. Two, Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. So one where the Chicago Cubs play and two where the Boston Red Sox play. I have been to both, and I am proud to say I've been to both. But in each case, if you walk into Fenway Park or you walk into Wrigley Field, there's something that's just different. You go to Wrigley Field, and it feels nothing like Globe Life Park. First of all, you walk into Wrigley Field and there are sights and smells that have been there for about 110 years. Better or worse, right? The old style is really old. The ivy is green and the grass is cut. It has a smell. Same thing with Fenway Park. As you walk into these stadiums, there's a a palpable sense of, of history and awe. There are sights and smells that do linger in these halls. There's also the moment that when you sit down and the first pitch and the first crack of the bat, it connects you with something that's been going on for over 100 years, that you're connected to a people and to a community that's sitting in that same seat for 100 years. People have been watching the same game, the same thing being done. But there's still a sense that these two stadiums are different than everybody else. These halls are hallowed because of their history, because of the championships that have been won there, because of the losing that's been done there by both franchises. But even for a non-baseball fan, it's undeniable. You see, these stadiums are indeed set apart from all the other baseball stadiums 
And I would say, and I would argue, any other stadium in all of the world, these two are better than any of them. Even the biggest, most technologically advanced, I will argue, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park are different and better than all of them. Why? Because of what they say to us, what they communicate to us. Because of everything that they've seen and heard and done. Everything that they've witnessed. They've witnessed wars. Multiple wars. They've witnessed cars that could hardly go 20 miles an hour to cars that can go 300 miles an hour. They've seen history. They've seen life. They've seen humanity. And they're just different. They're set apart. Can we actually say they're revered? Because they have seen these things and had these experiences? Because they've been set apart? And so this is what that strange word hallowed is. The hallowed halls. There's something different. And so when we say to the Lord and when we pray, hallowed be your name, what are we saying? We're actually making a request that we revere the holiness, we revere the magnitude and the majesty and the power of the Lord our God because He has seen everything, He has done everything, and He is not a hundred years old, but He has eternity past and eternity future, and we revere Him for who He is and what He's done because He's set apart. And He's different and better than all the others. But as we conclude our time here today, so we understand that the Lord is rooted in His character. We revere Him because He's holy and set apart. But actually, when we say, hallowed be your name, it's not an opening statement. It's actually a petition. It's a request. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're requesting something of God. We're asking Him to do something, to be something for us, to be Himself. We're asking him to expose his character to us. So for this section of the Lord's Prayer, we understand that heaven is, and, and hallowed, sorry, not, not heaven, but hallowed, is not the address as we often think it is. It's not, dear God, you are this. We're actually saying to him, we're requesting something of God. We're actually petitioning him to do something. We're asking, petitioning the Lord that his name be made holy in our lives that it would be set apart in our lives, that his name would be rooted and revered and set apart in our lives. And we pray, hallowed be your name. We're asking, hallow your name in our lives. May your name be holy in our lives. May it be set apart in our lives. May we be set apart because of who you are. So the very first thing that we ask the Lord of all the petitions in the, in the Lord's Prayer, of all the things that we ask the Lord for in the Lord's Prayer, we ask that His name would be holy in our lives. That His name would be set apart in our lives. That it would be revered and hallowed in our lives. In this petition, we ask God to let all we think, all we say, and all we do bring glory and honor to His holy name. We ask that we would live in such a way that we do not dishonor his holy name because he is set apart and holy and majestic. We ask that we live in such a way that we don't drag it down with us as we live out our lives. So when we live our lives, and if we pray this prayer today as we did, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, be holy in my life. May I then reflect your holiness. We're asking the Lord to do that for us 
And that in our actions, we wouldn't bring down his name. So as we go about our schoolwork, our, our jobs, our relationships, that we would reflect his holiness. That we would be defined by him. That our lives would be shaped by him and who he is and what he's done for us. Then it brings, if that's the case, it then brings glory to God. And when that name is holy in our lives, it brings him honor and it hallows his name. And so when we humbly believe in his word, we acknowledge our sinfulness and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. We get that from Ephesians chapter 1. Isaiah, the prophet, writes these words about the name, about who the Lord is, and this hallowedness, this holiness of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, he says these words, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Instead of looking to ourselves, instead of chasing other balls or other gods, instead of chasing other people or things for help, we are to look to the Lord our God and place our trust in him. Friends, this morning we have the unique privilege of coming before a holy, hallowed God. We have the unique privilege of coming before a holy and hallowed God and basking in the ray of his glory. As children in this family, as we saw last week, he beckons us you to himself today. He greets us this morning with the kiss of the sunshine upon our brows, doesn't he? And with the embrace of his grace. This is possible because he is hallowed and he is holy and he is set apart and he is unlike anything or anyone else. And so he is hallowed and set apart for worship because he has brought us from the depths of sin and misery to the heights of glory, and into his very throne room. And this is only accomplished by what Jesus has done for us. Why is he set apart? Why is he hallowed? Because someone might die for a friend. Someone might sacrifice themselves for a family member. But Jesus does that for rebels and enemies. And we're told in the book of Romans that we indeed are that. In our sin and in our misery, we are dead and we are enemies and in rebellion against the Lord our God. And still, he takes action and he says, I love you this much and I'm going to send my son for you to bring you to myself. So who are we? We are washed in the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This defines everything about us. It should make us go into our lives this week with praise and glory and honor and say, I'm going to live my life because he lived his life and died my death and rose again that I could have a hope and that I could hallow his name. And so, Lord God, hallow your name in my life. May I reflect your glory. This is why we worship him and him alone. There's nothing more to worship. There's nothing more to chase. No ball can die for you. Power, money, control. None of those who sacrifice themselves for you. As a matter of fact, they take from you. They deplete you. Jesus fills you with his holiness, his grace, his love, and his mercy. And he says, you are a Christian. You are my child. Who are you? You are an heir to the kingdom because 
our Father has called us to himself, and he is holy. So we say this morning, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. For you alone are set apart and worthy of all worship. Amen. May we hallow the Lord this week. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we are grateful for who you are and what you have done in our lives. We do ask that we would hallow your name, that your name would be holy in our lives. That we would glorify you in all we say and do. And so Lord, as we come to this table here and now, may we be reminded of this grace and this mercy. Of how it is that you show us your love and compassion and care for us. And so Lord, bless this time. Watch over us, wash over us, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.